IBD is an immune-mediated condition which primarily affects the gut. In IBD, inflammation is essentially causing damage to the lining of the bowel. The aim of treatment is to induce healing of the bowel so that symptoms improve. While there is no cure yet, there's a whole range of treatment options people with IBD can now choose from. They can manage this lifelong condition and lead their best life. My name is Heidi Jensen-Harris and I'm an IBD clinical nurse consultant practicing in Queensland. In our fourth episode of our Poo&A series, GP Paresh Dorda and gastroenterologist Eva Zhang will consider people's goals and preferences for treatment. Eva will walk us through the growing list of treatments now available for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and touch on the safety profiles of certain drugs. Have a listen to how far we've come with treatments for IBD. My name is Paresh. I'm a GP based in Canberra. I have a particularly interested in looking after people with complex and chronic conditions and long-term conditions. And of course, inflammatory bowel disease is a long-term condition. As well as my clinical work, I'm involved in some um, academic work with academic affiliations, and I do some consultancy work around models of care with the New South Wales Agency for Clinical Innovation and New South Wales eHealth. I'm Eva and I'm a gastroenterologist. I did my fellowship in Royal Melbourne and I have returned back to Sydney and I am currently a gastroenterologist here. I'm also currently also doing a PhD in the field of infection and immunity in inflammatory bowel disease. Eva, when you see a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, like every patient's unique, right? So mm-hmm. how do you go about talking to them around their goals of treatment and what intervention you're going to provide. Talk us through the rationale that goes through your mind, your, the clinical reasoning. So, I mean, when I do have someone with a new diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease or perhaps they've um, transferred into my care, I think it's important to really um, assess what their understanding of inflammatory bowel disease is. So often I'll ask them, you know, have you read or have you heard much about inflammatory bowel disease? Do you know anyone in, with inflammatory bowel disease? Um, because you do get people from a spectrum of, you know, not having known anything at all and, and needing, um, you know, to go from the start. Or those who are quite well informed because they've read a lot or they're part of a, you know, a patient's um, advocacy group, for example. And so it's important to really understand understand where they're at and what their understanding is. So what I'll say is inflammatory bowel disease is an autoimmune condition that it does affect the gut predominantly. And it's something that unfortunately, although not curable at this stage, is something that we can manage very well because we do have a really wide array of treatment options. And uh, first of all, the reason why they have symptoms is due to inflammation and damage to the lining of their bowel. And therefore, the aim is really to induce healing of that bowel so that their symptoms improve and so that they feel like uh, they can go about and live their life as a normal person. So this includes not only making them feel better, but also in the long term, ensuring that the Uh, damaged lining does heal, that we reduce the inflammation and treat an overactive immune system and essentially cause healing. And so that uh, the gastrointestinal system essentially resents that of someone who is well and completely normal and that we therefore reduce their risk um, of developing complications in the long term. Because ultimately, if someone has inflammatory bowel disease that is not treated, it can 
lead to complications such as narrowings or strictures in the bowel, um, which can cause uh, sort of uh, issues that can ultimately not be reversed. So it's really important to um, engage in the care and, and get to that stage where we get complete healing of, of the lining. In terms of um, the symptoms, obviously, we want to reduce their symptoms and improve their symptoms. And that may include abdominal discomfort, diarrhea, rectal bleeding. In patients, we also need to be aware of their long-term uh, nutritional deficiencies, for example, iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, or even reduction in bone mineral density. Those are important things to, to keep in check and manage. Um, in terms of managing the actual treatment, there's a fine balance between therapeutic targets as well as side effects. So it's important to make sure that they've got the right medication, um, that it's right for them at that stage, and to also be aware that their medications will change with time and that it's not uncommon for their disease to change with time as well. And so, therefore, the type of uh, regime that they are on may change with time as well. Ultimately, we do want to reduce those complications such as strictures, abscesses, uh, fistulas, avoidable hospitalizations as well as surgeries. And we ultimately do want them to be really well and for them to feel like that aside from the medications they might need to take or the infusions or injections that they might need to take, they feel very well and that they can almost forget that they have inflammatory bowel disease aside from needing to see me every six months, for example, and taking those medications that keep them well. Thanks, Eva. The goals really about their well-being, whether it's their emotional well-being or their physical well-being, and really optimizing their quality of life is just so, so important, isn't it? Indeed. As you know, with ulcerative colitis, it can affect the colon from the rectum and anywhere proximal to that. So what we usually start with, if we can, is a 5 uh, ASA. Um, in patients who have ulcerative colitis, it's important to know where the location of their disease is. So is it proctitis, just the, uh, you know, the latter five centimetres, for example, or is it perhaps left-sided? And by left-sided, I mean, um, you know, rectum, sigmoid, descending colon, or is it extensive? And by extensive, I mean it also goes past the slate flexure um, because that's really important for us to know whether or not in the use of topical agents, what formulation and where I'm going to target. So for example, um, if they just have proctitis, then perhaps a 5-ASA suppository would be adequate. And the 5-ASA suppository is always better than a steroid suppository. And then a topical 5-ASA, in addition to an oral 5-ASA, in turn is more efficacious than just the topical 5-ASA. So if they have proctitis, I would consider using a topical 5-ASA um, like a, a um, salazine suppository. Um, but if they've got something that's a little bit uh, more uh, proximal, for example, left-sided disease, and perhaps I'd think about using a 5-ASA enema, for example, like a mesalazine enema, which really um, helps target that left side. If they've got pancolitis, for example, then I would consider using not only a topical 5-ASA, but also an oral 5-ASA. In some patients, a topical 5-ASA is not enough, so you would use both. Um, steroid suppositories and enemas are also helpful, but we usually prefer 5-ASAs more long-term. Um, in addition to that, um, if, if someone is not well-controlled on a 5-ASA, and particularly in the initial period of time when they're quite symptomatic, we may need to use corticosteroids to try and induce that remission. Um, so that can be something like oral prednisone, 
um, or it can be even things like quartermint. So quartermint is a formulation um, which is um, obviously not absorbed systemically. So in people who aren't, you know, terrible and, and you think that you can get away with a quartermint as opposed to a prednisone, we might consider, um, you know, quartermint over prednisone, particularly in those who maybe have had previous steroid side effects. Um, if, if your 5-SA isn't working in the long term, we, then we need to escalate the therapy to an immunomodulator. And currently, um, in, in, in accordance with the PBS guidelines, we really do need a good trial of 5-SA and immunomodulator before we can consider going for a biologic or a small molecule. So um, usually with an immunomodulator, our choices are really um, azathioprine or 6-MP. Um, methotrexate is no good in isolation for ulcerative colitis, and it's you really only use um, in ulcerative colitis as an adjunct to a biologic agent such as an anti-TNF to reduce immunogenicity. So really we're just thinking about azathioprine and 6-MP as a monotherapy um, plus or minus 5-ASA for those with ulcerative colitis. Um, this is something that, again, does need to be monitored. So as you know, with azathioprine and 6-MP, we do need to check their TPMT uh, genotype um, to understand and predict how they will metabolise the drug, as well as do really quite careful um, and routine sort of full blood counts and liver function tests to make sure that we're not causing inadvertent bone marrow suppression. So you'll notice that you might get copied into lots of blood tests initially when they're started um, on these types of therapies and you might even see and notice that you're copied into things like a thiopurine metabolite, which is really helpful for us to target um, the dose of azathioprine or 6-MP to make sure they're getting a therapeutic effect. Um, so thioguanine is something that is used less commonly but can also be used um, in, and it's perhaps more used commonly in, in um, European countries, but you might see it used as well. So don't be too worried if you see someone on thioguanine um, if their gastroenterologist has actually given them a dose um, because we do use that as, um, as an alternative agent to azathioprine or 6-MP, particularly if they've had a bad experience with azathioprine or 6-MP, for example, pancreatitis, which can happen in 3% of people, in which case then thioguanine may be used as an alternative agent. Um, for those people who obviously aren't well controlled with a 5-ASA in an immunomodulator, then in many times they're escalated for biologic or small molecule. Um, and we know, you know, anti-TNF, good old anti-TNF, it's been used for a very long time. We've got a lot of experience. Um, and in general, it's, it's, um, it's also used in combination often with an immunomodulator to really reduce the immunogenicity and the, and the risk of forming antibodies to it. Um, we've also got the option of anti-integrin inhibitor such as venalizumab. Um, venalizumab we like to use as um, a first biologic in someone's in our arsenal because there are studies that have shown that venalizumab is most efficacious if it's used um, as a first biologic. And um, for example, if someone's got, you know, um, you know, moderate uh, ulcerative colitis and, and they're otherwise quite well, perhaps we might use betalizumab in preference um, of anti-TNF because betalizumab actually has a better safety profile and particularly for older patients with, with IBD, we might also try and choose betalizumab knowing that it's got a really good safety profile. Um, but, you know, anti-TNF is, is quite good as well and is also um, quite, quite safe to use as well. Um, we also do have the option, and you might have noticed, I don't know where the correction is to, whether you've noticed that some of your patients um, are increasingly on JAK inhibitors, such as prophacidinib or upadacidinib. Have, have you seen that? 
beginning to yeah i mean you know the the, the thing i guess eva is as a gp we might only have a handful of patients with inflammatory mm. bowel but certainly i'm beginning to see that coming through yes yeah, so JAK inhibitors, the use of tofacitinib and upadacitinib is definitely expanding um, because it's quite a effective agent, particularly for those who have failed other agents in the past. Um, and that's quite convenient sometimes for patients to take because unlike anti-PNF and integrin inhibitors, which are subcutaneous or intravenous, our JAK inhibitors are just a tablet. It's quite good. Yeah, I was just going to say, Evis, since I was a medical student a long time ago, that the mm. treatment modalities have just exponentially increased haven't they newer treatments which is fantastic i guess the initial kind of treatment approach is to get people into some stability and remission but then they might relapse um, often when they do relapse they'll often present to the gp like what's your advice to us as gps around how we might be able to manage a patient who presents with a relapse yeah so if, if you think someone's got a flare i think it's important to essentially try and understand and make sure that they are indeed having a flare because they can be mimics um to, to ask them you know what's your usual flare does it feel like a flare to you or does it feel like something different i think it's important to do some of the basic blood to try and really risk stratify them you know are they someone that you need to think about sending to hospital or is, there, is it someone that you think they that can wait so um, we're looking at their how many times they're going are there any red flag features like you know are they going more than six times a day is there a lot of rectal bleeding um, are they having any fevers are they getting your weight loss are they maintaining their nutrition and their hydration and then with their blood you can help we can help assess that you know is their crp sky high and it's important to notice to note that in ibd crp doesn't need to be sky high for them to be quite unwell so for example if their crp is 20 you know that that indeed is um already uh you know supports the fact that they do have a flare um we're looking for things like anemia we're looking for things like their albumin falling which can happen in patients um who both have an acute flare as well as a reflection of um, nutritional status as well if the abdomen falls. And in many cases, their platelets will also rise as well because of the, the active inflammation. So I would always worry a little bit more if their CRP is raised and their platelets are quite high. Uh, you know, in, in, in people who fit the criteria for acute severe colitis going more than six times plus or minus a fever or someone with quite significant you know pain for example I would send them to emergency really for evaluation where they get an x-ray and perhaps the need for intravenous steroids to try and help minimize you know induce um, remission and to get them onto the need for salvage therapy for patients who you think are trundling along they have a flare and they're not so bad that they need to go to ED then we have a bit more time then you can say well let's do an a stool culture as well to make sure that they don't have any infectious precipitants as well which can also be associated with a flare again the aim is really to induce healing of that bowel so that their symptoms improve and so that they feel like they can go about and live their life thanks everyone for your time and thank you for the great questions really enjoyed it thank you for that thanks eva this podcast series is produced by AgPal as part of a consortium with Crohn's and Colitis Australia and the Gastroenterological Society of Australia, supported by an Australian government grant. For more resources, including a suite of e-learning modules and live e-workshops, head to Crohn's and Colitis Australia Gutsmart website. Follow the link in the podcast description.
We support GPs in diagnosing and treating IBD and assist patients to get the support they need from a gastroenterologist to live their best lives with the significant lifelong condition. If you liked this podcast, please help us by leaving five-star review and sharing the podcast with other healthcare professionals. Smell you later.